Hello and welcome to the episode of the Hope Mindful Compassion Show. My name is Paul Garrigan and I look after the mindfulness program here at Hope. And I'm Miltos, Miltos Bikakis, I'm one of the therapists here at Hope too. And today you're going to talk to us about the compassion-focused therapy. Right. So what is this? What is it? Compassion-focused therapy is a relatively new form of psychotherapy. Um, I think we refer to it as a third wave CBT. The first wave being behaviorism back in the 50s and 60s, you know, after psychodynamic theory went down the drain, uh, behaviorists thought that they had the answer to everything and everything, you know, uh, behavior could be changed by manipulating environmental variables. Like Pavlov's dog kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of merit in that, I think, but then later on, I think in the 70s, maybe around the 70s, the cognitive uh, model took off, and that's Beck essentially, and Albert Ellis, when they realized that people talked quite a lot about how they thought. They thought and then they felt and then they did. So the link between thinking and emotion was emphasized. Uh, And that went on for approximately two decades, and it's still very big today. I think cognitive behavior therapy is massive. It's big here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. here as well, in the West, generally speaking. But around... I mean, I hope we can kind of use actually the clients at hope, don't we? We do. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's sort of ingrained in the program. I think CBT. Um, and later on, the third wave emerged, and the third wave was essentially us in the West borrowing, and I'm using air quotes here, borrowing um, amazing techniques and principles from the East and making them our own. You know, in essence, in essence, stealing them a little bit, really, and just rebranding them as something else. But it's been brilliant, and we've got things like DBT, Dialectical Behaviour Therapy, and ACT, Acceptance and Commitment, and one of them is Compassion-Focused Therapy. So it's an and we're going to move on to that in one second, but I just noticed something. What was the second wave? Or was there a second cognitive. wave? Cognitive. Oh, okay, sorry, okay. So oh. And this is why we get cognitive behavioural, right? Oh, so we've got okay. behaviourism, which is the first thing, oh. and then you've got the cognitive bit, where it's all about evaluating and modifying thoughts, and then you get the third wave, which is the more eastern, more sort of the wider lens, if you like. That Makes complete sense. Yeah. So if you open up. And so, so you've, you've kind of answered that question, where does it come from? But what is the, so with the, the, with the compassion-focused therapy specifically, so what is that specifically kind of addressing? So that's quite interesting. The guy that started to develop it, a guy named Paul Gilbert, was a clinical psychologist from the UK and uh, he did a lot of work on depression, CBT for depression in fact. And so he started work more and more with what we refer to as treatment resistant people. Yeah, so people who had lots and lots of treatment, various different modalities, medication, and nevertheless they didn't get better. So he became very interested in that. And he found out that there were a few underlying themes there a self-critical voice and shame being one of them in people with treatment-resistant problems, let's say. So, and this is how it differs, I think, when you compare it to many other forms of uh, psychotherapy and cognitive behaviour therapies, in that it focuses almost exclusively in understanding where the shame comes from and developing a kinder way of responding to oneself. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. I mean, is he kind of so? What's the case with him? Because you know, like he has someone like say John Kabat-Zinn, 
who kind of brought in mindfulness to the West. But he kind of he was doing it as somebody who kind of practiced these these practices like in Tibetan places like that, or, or from teachers from Tibet. And then he was kind of applying that to like Western problems and kind of you know get it backing it by research and stuff like that. It kind of sounds like is this right? Like with Paul Gilbert, it was kind of the opposite that he kind of found a problem and he was looking for possible solutions to it. Like he kind of saw the shame as a problem and, and looking for solutions that would help for it with that. Probably both end because I know that he's also a trained meditator. Oh. So he worked, I believe. I, I think don't quote me on this, but I think he worked with a, you know, people like John Kabat-Zinn. He had a meditation teacher, so he learned mindfulness inside out. I think because it was very big around that time when he started to also realize that there was an issue with shame and that the people weren't getting better. So I think it's a bit of both. So it was easy for him to make that connection. Yeah, yeah, because it was very big mindfulness at that moment in time. And I think that there's a lot of mindfulness practice, and he says that too, of course, uh, within CFT too. And what do you, I mean, so if that's the case, so you're going to have these compassion practices coming from the East, and you have the mindfulness practices coming from the East, what does the... I mean, what's the benefit of kind of taking them out of that context and putting them into a new context and say making them say you know, you know, CB, you know, making them kind of more um, rebranding them kind of thing? What, what's the the benefit of that? That's a very interesting question. I guess you try and apply it to people who live very different lives yeah. to people in in the in the east, and I think you know it loses a little bit in translation. You're absolutely right, and I remember a conversation we had earlier on when I first started working here about how mindfulness and the mindfulness that we do here is very different to the one that's taught in the West, I guess. So, also, there's something to do with what we call in the West evidence-based. Yes. You know, it's becoming so huge at the moment that people, people think it's important to be able to uh, measure it and see if it works, yeah? So that's the other difference. That here it's more of a way of life. Yeah, and it's yeah. You don't. You are mindful. You don't practice it. You you are simply. And I think that's very difficult to translate in the West. And why? And and, and, and so why is it evidence based so important? Well, funding I think is a huge issue. So the more you can show that if you do something, it works for people in a relatively short amount of time, especially in the West, the more likely you are to get funding for trials staffing so it's uh, a lot of it is money related I think especially you know I came I came from working in the NHS and the National Health Service in the UK for almost 18 years and I saw that and I saw its demise as well if you yeah. know, as a result of lack of funding so if you can prove that you can measure it and that it works then you get money for it and how did Paul Gilbert go about doing that that I'm not entirely sure so I haven't done it dissertation on Paul Gilbert I think but is, like, is there kind of is there research to kind of um, back up CFT there is a little bit of research I believe that it, it shows that people who are treatment resistant yeah. tend to show better outcomes if they've had a course of CFT uh, focused therapy because I don't know that many people so I for example don't practice compassion focused therapy here but you know when you become more and more experienced you're able to lean into different orientations yeah. and use them as you see fit in your session. So I've had to completely rethink uh, my way of doing therapy when I came here. Very nice. And so that brings us on to the next question. Like, um, actually, before we get to that, I mean, how, how are we defining compassion? Mm. Okay. So in psychology, there's a really beautiful definition of compassion, actually. And that's that 
Let me see if I remember it off the top of my head. It's sensitivity to the suffering of others and oneself yeah. with the commitment to alleviate and prevent it. That's yeah. So it has two components to it, you know, to be mindful and sensitive to it, but also to do something very active. And I think this is where mindfulness, and even though there's a huge overlap, mindfulness and compassion focused therapy are a little bit different in that um, there's something very active in compassion focused therapy. Not that, for lack of a better term, in mindfulness practices, there's a slightly more passive stance, so you sit there and you make sure that you observe and that you accept, and that you don't really need to do very much about the experience. Mm -hmm. I'm simplifying it now. Yes. The slight difference in compassion-focused therapy is that actually in, in therapy, you'll be a little more active about becoming more compassionate towards yourself, towards others, and there's various different exercises that we might do to try and achieve that. So I'm simplifying. That make, yeah, but it makes perfect sense. Well, well, I, don't, I don't know if this is um, something you've come, come up against or something you've had to kind of um, deal with. A common question I get is clients kind of saying, is compassion the same as empathy? And I kind of usually say, not exactly. Mm -hmm. And the reason, the reason, so from the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of Buddhist idea of compassion, it shouldn't be actually adding to the suffering. Like it's, it's kind of like, you kind of, you kind of, I kind of say, sometimes it's kind of like empathy with wisdom. In fact, you know, some people okay. can be kind of like, like empaths that you can kind of sit down who's someone that's feeling miserable and they just feel, just, they just feel miserable as well. Uh -huh. And it's almost like they're adding to the suffering. So how is that adding to the suffering if you're empathic with someone, well, sitting with someone? Well, if someone's kind of specifically, if, that, if just being around people that are, who are negative makes them feel negative, it's kind of like increasing the okay. negativity. And it could kind of, in an extreme case, it could kind of make them kind of almost dysfunctional. Okay. I really like this idea, though, that it's empathy with wisdom. With wisdom, I yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And that would go into what you said about, you know, it has to kind of include self-compassion. Well, so in compassion-focused therapy, there are three different flows of compassion. There's compassion from oneself to others. Yeah, that would yeah. be it. There's compassion from others to oneself. And then there's compassion from oneself to oneself. Yes, brilliant. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's the latter is extremely difficult for many, many people, including the clients that we work here. Yeah. And then there's a question I was going to ask later on, like in regards to the negative thing, because I've obviously got stuff with like people-pleasing and stuff like that. That, you, that could kind of, the person might feel they're being very compassionate when in fact they're actually kind of almost damaging themselves or you know avoiding their own stuff mm -hmm. yes absolutely and you're, I think you're able to quickly tune into whether somebody might need uh, a flavour of compassion in their life very quickly without it being uh, negative I guess mm -hmm. an interesting thing this question just appeared to me now because both of us are from a nursing background and a very common thing and this used to I mean I don't know if you, you'd agree with this but there's this thing, you know, people get burned out. And sometimes it would be kind of described as compassion fatigue. Oh, yeah. And I used to sometimes wonder, was it a kind of lack of compassion fatigue? In the fact that they didn't have the capability, they didn't have the compassion to deal with all the stuff that they were facing. Mm -hmm. The nurses? Yes. Yeah. I can speak for myself. I think I completely experienced compassion fatigue. And mm -hmm. then I started to see how it began to affect my work. Yeah. Never in a in an unhealthy way because I've been lucky, luckily, you know, through mindfulness practice, I've, I've been able to be aware of what's happening. And so I took the necessary steps to get out of it. But it's so common mm. to feel a lack of compassion after you've given it all out. Yeah. Very often, in what is a very thankless job, 
especially if you do it in the West. Yes. So you know you can give and give and give and give, but unless you have something to put back in, there's going to be a hole. There's going to be a gap. And could it also be the thing though that you know that compassion is something that we may need to develop? Oh, a hundred percent. And this is what we do. Yeah. In compassion focused therapy. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, this is something that just popped into my head there. So, what would you say, you know, for I know we don't do it with with all of the clients, but we do we do do with some of the clients, don't we? Are so you might use it with some of the clients I do, here? Absolutely. I do. I use the I use the there's a model for compassion focused therapy. Yeah. You know, I, I work from it. So rather than doing eight or sixteen sessions of compassion focused, therapy, you can't do that here. But once you do all of the stuff that's relevant to addiction, soon you realise that. One of the things that I heard when I started here in January, often from clients, is this idea of self-hatred. Yeah. Like every other person would say, I hate myself, you know, or lack of self-love, they would say. So when I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, that's very interesting. Let's, you know, let's tease that out a little bit. And often you find out that people have so much shame mm-hmm. for various different reasons, addiction and addictive behavior being one of them. And with shame comes a very strong, critical voice, actually. So those are the kind of areas that begin to you know, cause alarm for me that perhaps we need to be thinking a bit more about how to foster compassion if somebody's unable to experience it, give it to others or even give it to themselves, even more importantly. And would there be people where you'd never consider you know, offering? Is there, is, there, is there a reason for why this might not be a good choice for somebody? The compassion-focused therapy. You say this this person doesn't really need this, or, or it would actually kind of well, add to their problems almost. Many people don't need it at this moment in time. Yeah. For example, so that's a difficult question. So I was, th- I was going to think like say narcissists or people like with people. So okay, but think about this for a second. People with narcissistic personality disorder or you know narcissistic traits. What's behind that mm. is a huge bit of self hatred. Yeah, and that narcissism and all the traits of narcissism, if you look in the literature, is an overcompensation of really feeling unloved. So if anything, if you were to, a, to be able to get to that, then they would really need compassion towards oneself. Yeah? But you're absolutely right. You don't want to be doing that at the beginning of working with somebody like this before you've done a lot of other uh, prepping work. And would you have to kind of um, almost describe it differently or come at it at a very different angle? As far as what I'm getting at, I mean, is there a, is there a kind of risk of kind of using this for the dark side, you know, of misapplying it and mis, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, and I wouldn't. I don't often actually use the full compassion-focused therapy model in my in my therapy. I wait until there's a calling, and somebody says, you know, somebody says something that makes me think, oh my god, actually, you could really do with some developing of a compassionate mind. You know? And what kind of stuff would you actually do with them? What kind of stuff? So, like in most of CBT, there's a strong psychoeducational component. So, compassion-focused therapy is rooted in evolutionary psychology quite a bit, so we have different parts of our brain. And this is what really resonated with me when I first heard about compassion-focused therapy, that Paul Gilbert, in one of his books, I think it said, and in fact I read a, a quote about, about this somewhere else recently, that said, what did it say? You know this, pain is inevitable. Suffering is Suffering is optional. Beautifully summarizes, I think, what we sometimes do in compassion focused therapy because you will have pain and you will feel difficult emotions, but then you start to add layers and then you get really annoyed 
for adding these layers. Yeah, and we're looking mindfulness. We yeah. So say like that resistance against the pain that's there is actually what's the problem. Absolutely. So what Gilbert says is that actually that thing that happens, that negative loop, where we have an old part of the brain, this reptilian part that's just always out looking for danger, and then the newer part, the neocortex, we has, which has all these amazing capacities. Yeah. But when the two get into a negative feedback loop, you get rumination, you get annoyance, you get anger, you get wallowing in all of these states for ages and being annoyed about this. So he says, actually, when that happens, that's not your fault. Mm. And it's really, really nice. When I first sort of read that, I thought, okay, so actually, you know, you've been given this brain that you have no saying in at all. Yeah, we're talking about two million years of evolution there. So when that happens, that's not your fault. When you start to become really annoyed and angry at yourself and others, that's not necessarily your fault. So let's look at whether we can actually make you develop a compassionate side to it so you can be a bit kinder to yourself to start with. And how would you go about doing that? So you do this through various different methods. Once, once you get somebody on board, uh, you, we do a lot of breathing in a, in a way that's slightly different, perhaps, to mindful breathing because we pur purposely try to slow the breath right down. And you know mm. a lot about this in order to activate a broken parasympathetic nervous system. You know our parasympathetic nervous system is like the fire extinguisher of bad emotions, yeah? And with people who are very, very stressed or in addiction, that doesn't work. And this is why they find it really, really difficult to actually feel compassion. So you start by getting them to, and this is the foundation, you lay the foundations by getting them to be in a state that can soothe, actually, a very, very soothing state. And then you start to add so you'd be adding things like, um, so we do a lot of imagination and a lot of guided imagery. What kind of things would you be imagining? Very, very powerful. You know, if I, if I had to ask you, I don't want to do this because I don't want to use ex expletives yeah. for this podcast, but if I had to ask you to uh, start swearing really loudly, yeah, and just be really annoyed at somebody, what do you think would happen to your body? You'd be this constriction, wouldn't it? Absolutely, so you would start to feel the physiological symptoms, yeah? So imagination is extremely powerful and we, we use it to bit by bit try to develop a compassionate self. So it actually feels pretty similar to what we, we do in the, in the, say, the, the Buddhist approach to it. Because like we have the method, we also have st like practice deliberately for compassion, mm -hmm. which do involve a lot of visualizations and stuff like that. And yeah, so it seems to be kind of a similar thing. Yeah. There are many more similarities than differences. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so you would do things like you would get somebody when they're in that really beautiful state, we call it soothing rhythm breathing, and it's amazing to see clients actually practice it. They fall asleep, they start twitching, you know, the body really goes into the soothing mode, which is often what's been missing for life, I think. So then you might add developing a friendly tone and practicing seeing the difference of friendly tone, neutral tone, adding a tiny little half smile, and see what that does to your body after you've practiced this for about two minutes. It's quite incredible. And then slowly you start to build other exercises there with the aim to eventually start to develop this image of themselves mm. as a very compassionate person. How, how would they be acting? What would they be doing? How would they be talking? And bit by bit, you get them, you know, of course, it's a... CBT offshoot, so they practice this a lot. That's what I'm going to say. I mean, is this something to just do with you, or is this something that they kind of make a regular thing? Well, yeah, as with everything, I mean, you have to practice the yeah. skills that you learn in therapy if you want them to stay. Yeah. So it would basically be like a kind of daily meditation practice yeah. they would do. Yeah, so some of my clients actually 
do it before mindfulness, the sort of rhythm mm. breathing, for instance. So yes, you find a way that works for you. But and how long does it take? Like how many minutes does it take to do it? It doesn't have to take many minutes. I think once you get quite good at it, between five and ten minutes is fine. But the idea is that then you can bring to mind, a bit like doing mindfulness, mm. a situation, you can practice this, and then you can apply it in real life, so you can bring to mind the situation you find difficult, and that you've found difficult relating to, and then bring on the compassion itself and see how the compassion itself would actually react or respond oh, to wonderful. it. Yeah. And, and, can, and is this something that people can do on the move? Like say they're out and about and something is happening, can they kind of very quickly do that to kind of uh, trigger that kind of state of compassion again? If you have a very well-formed sense of a compassion itself, yeah. then you can bring it very, very quickly. You can bring it up very quickly. But like you said, you need to have practiced it. Yeah. And it requires a little bit of time. Oh, so behaviorism creeping in again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There is that. There is. I mean, you can't, you can't escape that. That's brilliant. Um, so is it something that, I mean, you kind of answered this already, but is it, it is obviously something clients can do on their own. Like once they learn it, but could they actually learn it by themselves? Is this something, or would they need to go to therapy? Would they need to? I think depending on the severity of the predicament, yeah, they could certainly do it. I mean, I learned a lot of it through self practice, self reflection. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of work on myself through doing this. I mean, I attended courses as well, and I don't think that there are many uh, safety therapists, if I'm honest. But it's certainly something, there's so many amazing manuals out there. That's what I was going to ask you next. Mm -hmm. What are the resources? Oh, just literally type on Amazon, Compassion Focus Therapy, and you see many, many things. I guess I would certainly recommend any of Paul Gilbert's work. He's a really amazing trainer, actually, when you see him speak. He's, he's and what, is it kind of directed to kind of, is it quite e easy to listen to or oh, is yeah. it kind of like it, would most people kind of be able to kind of uh, easily uh, absolutely there's a book called uh, Compassion Compassionate Mind Training and it's a workbook and you can find it on Amazon and you can literally start working and I'll link to these time. things later on yeah yeah you can uh, you can take your time and start working on it there's the book which I think is called uh, The Compassionate Com Mind Compassionate is it? Mind yeah. which was what he wrote I think in the 90s or something uh, and that's the original Bible, if you like. And to do the workbook, would you need to have read that first? Or? It would help, but not necessarily. And then for, for therapists who might want to actually have a flavour of what that's like, there's also something called uh, Experiencing compa Compassion-Focused Therapy from the Inside Out. Mm -hmm. And that's a, it's a series of uh, CBT-related books for therapists to try on themselves. And would that, would that be also kind of... If someone, just a, a person doing this, would there might be a value to them as well? Even if someone wasn't going to be planning on being a therapist, if they're just interested in learning more about uh, this therapy. Which bit? The, 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 that book for therapists. No, necessarily, because it requires quite a lot of pre previous knowledge. So it's far more in-depth, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the Compassionate Mind Training workbook would be perfect, I think, for anyone who's interested in giving this a go. And is Paul, does, is, is Paul Gilbert, isn't he? Yeah. Does, yeah. does he have, actually have his own website and stuff? He has an amazing website, uh, and I can't remember the name, but you can certainly, I can show you, you can link mm -hmm. it, and there's loads and loads of training on it, and free materials, and questionnaires, and information, compassion books, therapy. Yeah, so he does have a, a website. That's great. Is there any, any question that you kind of wish I'd asked and I didn't? You know, I could talk about compassion folks there before. Yeah, it looks like it. Uh, there are many it's really interesting. Like, <laughs> uh, no, not really. I would urge people, if they're interested, to, to look him up on YouTube even. He explains 
the model in detail very, very well. He talks about, for instance, one question would have been, he talks about the three different emotion systems that we have. One being the threat system, another one the drive system, and then the third one the soothing system, and that's the most recent one that we've developed. And how most people in addiction, but in people with psychological difficulties, they have an overactive threat system, and very often quite an active drive system. But if you get them, and I do this sometimes in therapy, if you get them to draw the three circles out, and you get them to draw the soothing system, what comes out is a tiny little circle, because it's very underactive. So we could talk a lot more about this, we don't have to, I guess it's about... Well, I, I think we're going to need to do some more podcasts anyway, because I mean, there's so much that you, know, you, you, you can speak about. I have some interests. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's brilliant. Thanks a million for, for, for doing this. I'm going to catch up with you again. And I'll link to those things in, in, the, in the show notes. Thank you, Paul.